You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. What can we learn from ancient philosophy? What can we learn from philosophers of the ancient world? What do they have to tell us in this conversation about education? Can we even make some applications from education to ministry in the 21st century? I think that we can. And today's guest is a great guide in that endeavor. Today's guest is Dr. Gary Hartenberg. Dr. Hartenberg is the director of the Honors College at Houston Christian University. He's the author of a number of books, but today we're talking about Aristotle, Education for Virtue and Leisure. If you're like me and the title kind of catches you, I'm not surprised about virtue, but leisure, education is for leisure, then stay tuned to hear what Dr. Hartenberg has to say about what leisure is and how education helps us to get there. In today's episode, we are going to talk about education. We are going to talk about the benefit of reading old books. We're going to talk about differences between the ancient world and ours and some of the benefit of putting the ancient world against ours so that we can challenge some of our own assumptions and also develop in humility. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the episode. Wesley Seminary prepares Christian leaders to engage in missional ministry locally and globally through fully online Masters of Ministry, Masters of Divinity, and Doctor of Ministry programs. Learn from professors who will help you grow in your knowledge of scripture, theology, and church history with the goal of applying what you learn from the local ministry. Journey with a spiritual formation cohort made up of students from around the world that take their own ministry experience and challenge you to sharpen your ministry skills and deepen your spiritual formation. Wherever you are, in whatever way you serve in ministry, we want to serve you. We are Wesley, and you belong here. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Dr. Hartenberg. It's a joy to have you with us. Thanks very much. I appreciate you being here. Well, you and I are both educators and serve in that in that realm, and we have people listening in that are educators. They are Sunday school teachers. They are parents. They are pastors. Education is all around them. Education is a huge part of ministry, and you've done some work and research and writing on an educational theorist, let's say for the purposes of this podcast episode, who lived thousands of years ago. So let me start just by asking why should we be concerned with educational theory that's now thousands of years old? The philosopher, the educational theorist that, that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years now, researching and writing about is Aristotle, uh, ancient Greek philosopher. He lived 384 to 322. We're thinking in terms of the Christian timeline. He's there about 300 years before Christ. The question of why we should think about these old figures in general is a good one. You know, I sort of have to think about this when you when you sort of write application. Okay, we've got these ideas. But I think really the, the fundamental answer is that human nature doesn't change over time or across cultures. What a human being is, what a human being needs, what the purpose of, of human beings are. That, I don't think, and I think Aristotle would agree, those things don't change. If we're thinking about how do we educate people in the year 2022, and we're wondering what Aristotle has to do with that, I, I think one of the answers is 
human nature doesn't change. A couple other sort of, I'd consider them prudential reasons. And one of them sort of draws on what C.S. Lewis wrote about and the, the value of reading old books is that if we're sort of thinking about education in general and, and educating maybe particular kinds of students or in certain sorts of environments, uh, it's much easier to see the errors in sort of the older philosophers and the old books because they don't share a lot of our assumptions. Some they do, many they don't. It's pretty easy in many respects to see the mistakes that Aristotle made. For example, he thinks that certain people are just naturally slavish. And so the appropriate thing to do with them is to treat them as slaves. This can be really off-putting for readers. They just kind of want to close up the whole book and throw it away. I think that's probably the wrong response. Probably better just to say, well, he's clearly wrong about slavery. And so we, we shouldn't treat people as slaves. And that's kind of obvious to us in a way that it wasn't obvious to him. And similarly with things about sexual differences between men and women, boys and girls, right? So it's unclear whether Aristotle thought that girls should be or could be educated in the way that boys are, you know, subsequently men and women, similar question. And so that's another way in which we just kind of see a clear mistake in Aristotle's reasoning. Take us a little bit into the language of human nature just for a moment, because on the one hand, somebody might be saying, okay, I, maybe I agree, maybe I disagree that human nature across cultures doesn't change. I want to unpack that a little bit. But somebody might also be, be thinking, if the point of education is to bring about some kind of change, then what is being changed, if not human nature? Or historically speaking, if we can look back and see things differently now than Aristotle had as in mind, just say a little bit more about that so we have in mind what you mean that human nature doesn't change. Yeah, so I guess there is uh, two ways of thinking about that. I don't know if this makes sense, but the nature of human nature or what human nature is, isn't changing or doesn't change. But human nature or human beings themselves can obviously change and grow. And we want education to be helping that change and that growth, right? So, for example, Aristotle would say that really, when you get down to it, what is a human being? His description of a human being is a rational animal. So animal just means we're alive and we can move around on our own. And then the rational part of that is that we are a living being moving around on our own who can reason, who can think. And he does mean something like reasoning at a fairly high level. So I like to use the example of geometry. If you can do geometry, then you are reasoning in the way that Aristotle thinks human beings can reason. And obviously, there are other disciplines or subject matters or things that we can reason about. But sometimes people get tripped up and they're like, well, I've seen my dog reason, you know, and or don't we know that chimpanzees can reason and, and that sort of thing. And I don't think Aristotle would be too troubled by that, uh, just because when he talks about reasoning, he means it at a fairly high level that you know human beings can typically achieve what a human being is we are rational animals that's not changing that hasn't changed uh, you are a rational animal i am a rational animal our kids are actually rational animals when you say human nature doesn't change that's what i mean 
we've always been, human beings will be rational animals, according to Aristotle. Now, can we grow and develop as rational animals? Yes, yes, that can change. I have in mind uh, one of Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's pictures of the human being as well. He said, you know, you can see human beings very much up close as individuals, and you can also see them from a distance as a as a singularity, as a pack. And whenever you extend that over time, and I think this is where it's so helpful for us to learn from the ancients, you can extend that not just over space, but you can extend that over time and see human beings across time as a kind of singularity. And just like you said on Lewis's comments on reading old books, that the mistakes are so obvious to us, but we can learn to apply their, their wisdom. And it also brings some humility because our mistakes aren't obvious to us. And so there's a way in which some of the insights and wisdom of other ages can be applicable for us, can be kind of startling to us, which is really helpful and refreshing. And Lewis says, this is why we, we need the old books. The future books would be helpful too, but we don't have access to them yet. We can think about human nature as being that underlying beingness to human being. But within that, we have opportunity both as individuals and as a collective to grow and to develop, to change within that context of human being. All right, so let's drill into a bit of the context then of education. I teach adult students, and so a lot of my students, I've had to rethink and, and learn some of my educational practices to think about andragogy, right, teaching other, other adults and how they become learners and teachers. But a lot of us, we think about teaching and education around children. And of course, children in the ancient world were seen and thought of differently than children in the modern West. You've already highlighted one of the differences, Aristotle's thinking between boys and girls. That's one way that we think differently today than he would have 2,300 years ago. What are some of the other key differences that you would say if somebody's going to you know, dare to pick up and read old philosophy on education? What are some of the other key differences that they should be aware of? I always find these questions a little tricky because there's going to be someone out there who's listening and they're going to say, aha, but what about this person that you haven't read before? They, they don't fit this mold. So take that uh, as a caveat, because also one other caveat to make is we're talking, I'm at least I'm talking mostly about Aristotle, who is a philosopher. And Aristotle himself says, when he starts talking about even education, he's like, well, people disagree about what education is and who it's for and how to do it and what should be involved in it and when it should start and when it should end. So he has his own definite views about that. But he's also clear that he disagrees with lots of other Greeks. Now, he does have quite similar views of other philosophers, primarily his teacher, Plato, and their teacher, or Plato's teacher, Socrates, right? So there's a lot of overlap, but there's still that's overlap among philosophers. So even if you were to go back in ancient Greece and ask who should be educated, what's the purpose, you wouldn't necessarily get Aristotle's view. You might get a very popular view, right? Uh, so what's the purpose of education? A Greek person might just say, well, to learn a trade, to make a living, to bring honor to your family, you know, th these sorts of things, uh, to be able to live a good life. And those are lots of things that you'll hear from people today about education. I just want to make it clear that when we talk about Aristotle, right, he's himself is sort of in a way fighting or having this debate with others in his time about the nature of education. So the nature of children is similar, right? So we're, we'll share a lot of overlap with the ancient world about the nature of children. 
So, for example, the idea that children are impressionable. Aristotle is a firm believer in this, right? He thinks that you need to be very careful with young children. And by that, he means even up to 12, 13, you know, through puberty, even maybe older than that, up to 18, that you have to be very careful about what you let your children take part in, in terms of games and playing, the kind of people that you let them be around. Doesn't think it's a good idea for parents to let their children be around what he calls coarse or vulgar people. And in particular, he's concerned about the language that they'll pick up, not just bad words, but the way of speaking and and the way of using language in general, but also very concerned about uh, the stories they hear, the songs they sing and and hear sung and, and that sort of thing. There's a sense in which we are quite similar in that thinking that we also think of children, I think, in general as very impressionable, right? They soak up whatever it is they're first exposed to becomes sort of a foundation. Maybe some differences. This maybe just applies to sort of modern Western nations. I don't I don't know about much about other uh, cultures. But the idea of being uh, like a six-year-old or a 10-year-old, I don't see a lot of that, actually. That's not how Aristotle talks about children. He doesn't talk about them in terms of being X number of years old. And especially, they don't talk about their children in terms of what grade are they in school. Um, So being in X grade in school, obviously, grades are more or less modern invention. And so Aristotle would have a different way of categorizing or or talking about children, and they would be closely tied to their biology and their development. So his main division is for children is those who are prepubescent and those who are postpubescent. And that that onset of puberty and the growth through that is the primary sort of fundamental division for, for him. Sometimes that can be helpful for us, right? We get caught up in these artificial kind of categories of what grade are you when maybe even developmentally uh, it's more fundamental sort of what biological changes are, have you yet to undergo and, and that sort of thing. Your comment about what grade are you in, how old are you reminds me of another educational theorist, Sir Ken Robinson, and he's got a great video on YouTube that you can watch. Somebody's put it to that cartoon kind of structure. He says, it's not as if our manufacture date is the most important thing about us. Precisely because children are impressionable, they might be at different levels and have different interests whenever they they come into a shared learning environment. And I think that's really important as I, I think about ministry, I think about the ways that we do Christian education. How do we question some of our assumptions? How do we question some of the systems that we've inherited from the wider cultural world of splitting into grades, of having classes of certain sizes? having a curriculum that we've just accepted, all these things are worthwhile challenging. They're worthwhile thinking about. They're worthwhile for all of us, in a sense, to become philosophers about. And if we're going to try to become philosophers, then we should learn from philosophers. I really like that you said there's you can't just look at the ancient world as though it's one thing. Aristotle's own view in the ancient world would be different from what a popular view would be. And I think that there might be some listeners who are listening and they'd say, of course. And, and it's good news that my views of educating my children and what goes into that 
I'm glad that they're different from some of the philosophers of the day that are around. And if I'm being judged in a in a future day, then I would like my own views to be considered distinct from the views of other experts or so-called experts or popular opinion, whatever else it is. So so even just breaking that up and recognizing the some of the the differences between groups of people thinking or differences between individual children, I think is really helpful for me as I'm thinking about education. To bring it into my own home, I learned slowly, but still fairly early on, the way I was going to engage in educating some of my children was different from how I was going to engage in educating others of my children. Same home, same parents, lots of similar experiences, learn radically differently. I appreciate just some of these things that you're you're reminding me of in the midst of thinking about education. Tell us a little bit more about Aristotle, a little bit more of the story and his approach to education. Yeah, sure. So Aristotle, like I said, uh, he's a Greek. He's actually Macedonian, if you want to be pedantic about it. So born 384. If people know anything about him, they've probably heard say that he was a student of the great philosopher Plato. Also that Aristotle was a teacher of Alexander the Great. Now, the first one, yes, absolutely true. We have lots of evidence that Aristotle studied with Plato, uh, studied a long time, I mean, 20 years probably, that Aristotle spent as a quote unquote student in Plato's school. You know, obviously they thought about higher education much differently than we did today. So it, it's not like he was a perpetual grad student who never graduated, right? Oh, he's on year 20. No, I mean, he was a student in a kind of a fundamental sense where he had a teacher, Plato, right? But for 20 years, he, he was studying his philosophy and even working out his own. He was also said to be the teacher of Alexander. When I was doing research for my book, I, I found it turns out to not, there's not a lot of evidence for how long he taught Alexander or even what sort of things he might have taught him. So sometimes you get these very sort of romanticized views that, you know, Aristotle knew Alexander as a young boy and for became his mentor and, you know, teacher, that sort of thing. Probably not. I mean, I'm guessing he was maybe had a few years at most to teach Alexander. Most of the claims about what he taught are from many, many years later. Uh, we don't really have anything close to Aristotle's own life with those sort of records. He eventually went to study with Plato. He, he left his home in northern Greece, went to study with Plato for the express purpose of studying with Plato. That we seem pretty clear about. It sort of, he had moved around. So eventually, because Aristotle himself wasn't Athenian, that's where Plato's school was in Athens. So Socrates was an Athenian and Plato was an Athenian, but Aristotle was not an Athenian, right? So he was. Uh, a foreigner in many respects, an outsider to Athens. And there were some moments in his life where he decided to leave Athens because the Athenians were getting sort of hostile to outside influences. And Aristotle would sort of could have been a target for their sort of popular dislike. So he moves around a bit. He eventually returns to Athens. And actually, instead of going back to Plato's school, uh, he starts his own school. Starts it in a place called the Lyceum, and his school become known as the Peripatetics, which is a fun little trivia. 
the peripatetic uh, word comes from the Greek for a walking path or even the stones laid out for a walking path. And probably it just meant that the location where the Lyceum was had a big walking path through various groves or orchards or things like that. Uh, but sometimes people like to think of it as Aristotle taught as he walked around. Maybe they did. If you have a peripatetic approach to education, you might teach and walk at the same time. I actually did this this morning with my daughter's class. Uh, gives you a different feel for teaching and lets students have a time to reflect as they walk. So Aristotle, that's his kind of biography. He wrote a lot. The works that we have, they fill up currently two substantial volumes of philosophy, the complete works. Allegedly, uh, he also wrote works that were dialogues, a lot like Plato did. But somewhere along the line, we, as a civilization, lost those dialogues. People didn't find them as interesting or as useful as the works that we have now. Uh, and he wrote about a wide variety of topics, philosophy, ethics, but also ancient science. He was very interested in biology, works about meteorology and physics in general, also works that we would consider now to be matters of psychology, including investigations into things like memory and dreaming. He was very wide ranging in his interests. He lived in ancient Greece, and like you said, that was not a monolith itself. Education for Virtue and Leisure. That's the subtitle of your book. Virtue is one of those words and concepts I think is undergoing a bit of a resurgence. I know part of the Christian education that I was taught, we're thinking about virtue. The curriculum has virtue components in addition to some of the content of Bible and theology or basic Christian doctrine, right? So virtue is something that's growing. I want you first to talk about that, but then I also want to hear about leisure, right? Leisure is kind of one of those things that catches you by surprise. So we're going to come to that, but first tell us a little bit about virtue. Why did it matter in the ancient world and why is it important for education today? The Greek word here for your, your Greek speakers, Greek readers is arete. It can mean virtue. It can also just mean a broader sense of excellence. Sometimes I prefer excellence uh, because virtue in English can imply that we're just talking about moral character and that sort of things. But uh, Aristotle, the basic framework that he inherited from Plato is that everybody wants to be happy, but in order to be happy, you have to be virtuous. You have to be excellent. He means this in a variety of contexts. So he would say, for example, you need good character. Things like you need to be courageous, you need to be just, you need to be moderate or temperate in, in your satisfying your own desires, you need to exercise self-control. Also, you need to be a good thinker. Uh, so sometimes we don't think about virtue in the context of thinking, but Aristotle definitely did. And there are a number of different areas in which we think. Some, some of our thinking is about purely, we would call them abstract or theoretical matters, things like geometry. In order to be happy, you need to be excellent in your theoretical reasoning. But you also need to be really, and this is fundamental, you need to be excellent in your reasoning about the choices that you make in life. Again, for our, our Greek readers and speakers, the, the word here that Aristotle centers on is phronesis. And this idea, it's often translated prudence or practical wisdom or sometimes just wisdom, but practical wisdom, 
And the idea is that you need to be excellent figuring out the right choices to make in life. And these could be on a small scale, but also on a large scale. So the idea that you have to be virtuous, you have to be excellent, applies to both character and it applies to both our mind, our intellect. It also applies interpersonally and socially. So a justice, for example, we need to be excellent in a just way as well. And that covers how we interact with each other. Aristotle's idea is that we focus on being virtuous in all of these ways. And then as a result of that, being happy or becoming happy flows out of that or is, is almost like a result of that. So one idea is that you can't aim directly at being happy. If you got up and you said, I'm going to be happy, Aristotle would say, okay, well, what, what are you aiming at? What are you going to do directly as a result of your desire, your decision to be happy? And his answer is nothing. You, you can't actually do that. What you can do is say, I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to be just. I'm going to become more prudent in my life. And those are things that you can work on directly. And they're going to be different. And here, like you mentioned, right, the education is going to be different. So how someone develops courage is going to be different than how someone becomes good at geometry. They both involve a lot of practice, but obviously the types of things they practice are, are going to be different. Courage is going to, you know, lots of stories in early childhood about courageous people, about the need to be courageous and so forth. You know, Aristotle thinks it even goes down to making sure we're playing the right kind of music for our children, right? The courageous, inspiring kind of music. All of that talk and concern about virtue is for the sake of making people happy. Making people happy, maybe not quite right. It's that happiness kind of flows out or comes out of being virtuous. And the idea of prudence, that phronesis, that is central to it. You can't be excellent. You can't really be virtuous unless you have this really central virtue of, that governs making the right decisions in your life. This is deeply connected with John Wesley and his work on holiness and happiness as well. So it's like virtue creates in us the capacity for happiness. And for Wesley, he's going to say holiness is that transformative work that just expands our capacity alongside being envious or alongside being jealous, alongside just being relatively unpleasant towards other people, that happiness cannot dwell alongside those things. Those things need to be dealt with and done away with in order for us to be happy. And so I really like what you said, that happiness itself is not something that you're aimed at attaining. It's the byproduct of these underlying things. It's the byproduct of the transformation of the self to become courageous, to become just, to become prudent, to become wise. And I'm thinking of Wesley as well. He'll say, well, there's no holiness without social holiness. In other words, there's no holiness just on one's own. Holiness is an interactive life involving relationships, how we treat other people, what the interests that we have are, or what our dispositions are. And likewise, I hear you talking here with phronesis that virtue necessarily involves the choices we make, the ways that we engage in life with other people, the ways that we engage with other rational animals, to put it like that. There's a necessarily communal aspect to it in the way that we're engaging. And so I think about even the ways that I think about educating my own children, the formation that they're having at home. Yeah, there's times that I engage in this in a one-on-one -on -one way, but we can even over-elevate this kind of one-on-one -on -one kind of education because education has to involve the community aspect. 
how do children learn to engage with other children, with their peers? How do they learn to engage with other adults? I mean, unfortunately, we can probably think of adults that don't engage well with other adults. And maybe there's there's a way that edu- their education has, has failed and they haven't been part of it. But I really appreciate you bringing up this sense of the how the community plays a role and necessarily is a context in which education is happening. Maybe that leads into the next part of the book title, Leisure, right? Engaging in leisure. Talk to us about that. It's a surprising outcome for education. So I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about what this means. If I could add one thing to your comments about the communal aspect of this, Aristotle also thinks that friendship is necessary for happiness, that no one is happy on your own. So, and, but he thinks in order to be a good friend, you have to be a good person, right? You have to be virtuous. So he says things in, in his book, uh, most of what I'm talking about, you can find in his, his treatise, The Nicomachean Ethics, which his son was named Nicomachus. So likely that this book was named for his son. But in, in the Nicomachean Ethics, he has two extended chapters on the nature of friendship. And he says things like, bad people can't be friends. Because to be a friend is to want what's best for the other person, purely only for the sake of the other person. And they want what's best for you. So it's reciprocal. And you're both good people, right? So friendship, even apart from the broader society, in his day, that would be their city-state, the polis, right? But even apart from that broader context, the circle of friends that the virtuous person has is really important. Now, over the course of of a whole life or the majority of one's life, Aristotle thinks that the best way to live life is to organize your life so that you have time for leisure. A lot of people hear leisure today, and I would think this way if I weren't steeped in, you know, spending uh, lots of time reading these works too, so no one's blaming them, right? But a lot of people hear leisure and they just think like relaxation or vacation time or something like that. Aristotle doesn't necessarily mean that. What you do in leisure time is you spend time doing things that are valuable, that are worthwhile for their own sake, and not really for any outcome or anything else that you can do as a result of them. You know, we often think of sort of recreation, relaxation in terms of, so I do my work, but now I got to relax and refresh and recharge so that I can go back to doing the work. And the work is the most important thing because it gets stuff done or you know things like that. Aristotle wouldn't think of leisure that way. He would say, if you work, you work in order to have opportunity for leisure. And then what you do in your leisure time is valuable for its own sake. It's not so I'm refreshed and I'm recharged so I can get back to work. That might be like a byproduct of it. Uh, but that's not the main aim. Now, Aristotle is a philosopher, so no surprise that he thinks the main thing that you ought to be doing in your leisure time is philosophy, philosophizing. Though it's really interesting what he what he means by this. So when he talks about philosophy or metaphysics, or sometimes he his his phrase is first philosophy, he actually thinks of contemplating sometimes in an introspective sort of way, but also through dialogue with others, but contemplation of the highest truths. And he actually thinks that these are truths about God. His God is not a personal God, 
but he thinks that first philosophy is truths about uh, God and his unchanging nature. And so then when we contemplate in our leisure time, what we're doing is contemplating God. And that is the goal of education, right? That's the goal of human life. Now, we also, we have other things we need to do. So it's not like that's the only thing we do in life. But his idea is that we organize our lives around that. We make choices with that in mind and, and prioritize and so forth. So the idea that we, we contemplate God in our philosophy as Christians, we would refer to this as theology in a way. And different forms of contemplative prayer kind of fit in nicely here or sort of contemplation. He doesn't, Aristotle doesn't really talk a lot about worship. You wouldn't expect that from a, from a pagan Greek. Their ideas of worship and, and that sort of thing would be very different from the Christian ones. But I, I don't see why you couldn't build that into a concept of leisure so that leisure is informed by a communal or even private worship. So I said he was a philosopher. But he does sometimes say that the activity of leisure is are things like listening to music. And by that, he means some, he could mean like, like music, like we would understand it, but also stories and poetry. And his point is that you listen to music not for any reason other than just to listen to the music, to enjoy it, maybe appreciate it. Uh, this is where your education comes in, right? If you have a musical education, you'll be better able to appreciate music that you listen to in your leisure time. But the thing that philosophy and music and possibly other things like this have in common is that they're all done not for the sake of other things that you can do with them, but simply for their own sakes. They're valuable just for what they are. In a very small way, there's a way, if no one listens to this conversation, it's still been leisure. It's still been worthwhile for its own sake to be with one another, to be exchanging ideas and questions and hearing what others have learned because there's an end in itself of just simply to be enjoyed. And so I can see how that loops back easily into happiness. If I think about leisure as this place where the capacity for happiness is then put on display as I'm just enjoying that which is there simply to be enjoyed. And even the fruit of your labor, and no doubt some of the work that went into writing a book, is then offered to me that I can enjoy it as well, right? Your work was offered in a sense as a gift that I can then participate in the leisure of this kind of conversation. That was very well said, very nicely summarized. Thank you. Joining us today has been Dr. Gary Hartenberg. Dr. Hartenberg is the author of Aristotle, Education for Virtue and Leisure. It's published by Classical Academic Press. Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks very much, Aaron. Really appreciated it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You make conversations like this possible. The Wesley Seminary podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry, and I hope that we've also introduced the purpose of leisure today. Connor, thanks for being our producer. Thanks for being such a great teammate here at the Wesley Seminary podcast. Trust you all to have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.